0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week I'm focusing on house prices, which are now down five or 6% in Sydney, depending on who you talk to. The question before the house, so to speak, is how much will house prices fall in total? And how dangerous is this for the economy and for investors generally? For some answers on that, I turn to Tim Lawless of CoreLogic, who compiles the house price data, Alan Oster, the Chief Economist of NAB, and Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Capital. And speaking of questions before the house, How about politics this week? What with David Landhelm and Tony Abbott both going troppo to discuss the issues behind the theatrics as well as the theatrics themselves, of course, I turn to Lyndall Curtis, former Parliament House Bureau Chief for Sky News Australia and ABC News 24 political editor. And now for our monthly house price discussion with Tim Lawless, the Head of Research at CoreLogic, talking about the June house price results. Tim, I feel like it's once a month we catch up with uh, the latest fall, and uh, what are we up to? It's um, uh, That's the question. What are we up to now in terms of the fall of the Australian median house price? What's it? Uh, w- what are we up to?
1: Well, it is a bit like that, isn't it? We're seeing uh, month-by-month falls. In fact, this is the ninth consistent month where we've seen national values fall. And uh, over June, they were down 0.2%. Which uh, which means we've seen dwelling values fall by a little bit more than one and a half percent since they peaked out late last year. But of course Sydney is really where that the largest falls have been from since when they peaked in July last year, City values are down by four point eight percent. But it's looking like Melbourne's just starting to catch up a little bit now. We've seen we saw Melbourne peak a little bit later than than what Sydney did, it was actually November last year. But Melbourne was the worst-performing capital city over the June quarter. We saw Melbourne values fall by one point four percent, and they're now down two percent from when they peaked.
0: Um, of course, Sydney and Melbourne went up the most, so it's it's off a high base, of course.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's probably keeping this in context is really important. So prior to say Sydney moving into a decline, we saw values rise by about seventy percent. Uh, Melbourne not quite as much, up by about 62% uh, um, during the growth phase, so it's really only those buyers that have bought in over, say, the past year or so that may be seeing some slippage in their overall uh, property
0: value. Do you have a view of um, what what sort of total fall we're likely to see, both uh, nationally and in Sydney and Melbourne?
1: Well, there's, there's a couple of different views, and uh, we have a we do have a formal forecast which
0: suggests that
1: uh, well, this is based on a Moody's Analytics macroeconomic model that we overlay against a hedonic index, and that shows that Sydney and Melbourne are likely to bottom out early into next year, at least on an annualised basis. So, in, the, in that sense, the market uh, downturn looks looks quite shallow. But when you start looking at the credit environment and the fact that we probably aren't going to be seeing any loosening in credit, even though we're seeing the 10% investment speed limit being lifted this month, we're not really expecting the credit environment to to loosen up. And that's really the the main driver of what's keeping a lid on housing prices at the moment is the fact that credit availability is much tighter. And that, that of course, is affecting investors more than owner-occupiers. So with that in mind, I think uh, we probably will see a more sustained downturn than what those formal
0: forecasts are showing. So, but what amount, what do you think is the percentage we're we're going to end up with?
1: We've already seen Sydney values fall by nearly 5%, and I think another 5% fall on top of that probably uh, wouldn't be too surprising. So a peak to trough decline of around 10% in Sydney, once again in the context of values rising 70% or so prior to that, Melbourne uh, looks a little bit more resilient. We we may not see values fall by quite that much, but of course, outside of those two large cities, we are seeing much more stable conditions. In fact, markets like Perth are starting to show signs of bottoming out, even though we did see another month of decline in June. The the, the trend rate of growth is uh, – well, the, the trend rate of decline, I should say, is, is much less now than what it has been over the
0: previous years. Would you say that Perth is the best uh, best environment for investors at the moment?
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think uh, yeah, Perth, even though the market is leveling, it, it, it's not really showing a uh, um, a lot of growth prospects. Simply because we're still seeing migration rates very much uh, in, in the negatives, particularly interstate migration. Uh, the economy is starting to improve, and jobs growth is improving, but uh, but I think it's going to take some time before the market really starts to accelerate. I think better investment opportunities will be found around Southeast Queensland, where we're seeing really strong migration trends. Uh, the labour markets improve improved substantially. And we're also seeing uh, a rising demand coming from New uh, South Welshmen crossing the border, as well as sea changers uh, who are very much attracted to the Southeast Queensland pocket for the lifestyle and uh, the weather and so forth, particularly the Gulf Coast and Sunshine Coast markets.
0: In fact, the, some of the a lot of the momentum at the moment is in Hobart. Are You surprised at the extent of the boom there?
1: Uh, yeah, a, a little bit. I'm probably surprised by the, the sustained the sustained uh, level of growth in in Hobart. So values over the past twelve months are up twelve point seven percent across Hobart, roughly the same as what it was a year ago. Um, the, the previous financial year values are up twelve point eight percent, so so about the same. I would have thought that Hobart would be slowing down in that rate of growth uh, by now. Maybe we are seeing the first signs of that. The month-on-month figures for for Hobart was up 0.3%, which is still quite uh, uh, robust, but um, certainly much weaker than what we've been seeing over, over previous months. But you've got to look at Hobart in, in the sense of demand has been very strong, so migration rates have really picked up, but there's been re- no real supply response. So we are still seeing housing uh, um, dramatically undersupplied. In fact, listing numbers in Hobart are down about 30% from a year ago, which means uh, uh, buyers don't have a lot of choice. There's a lot of urgency in this market um, and, and homes are selling very rapidly in less than 30 days.
0: A fair bit went on in the economy this week, and to go through it all, here's Alan Oster, Chief Economist at NAB. Well, Alan, there's a bit of ABS data out this week, um, retail sales and trade, and also the RBA, of course, but I wonder whether, I think most people are looking at uh, house prices at the moment, and that was also out this week. I just wonder, how dangerous do you think the decline in house prices is getting
2: I don't think it's that dangerous at all. So let me put it a different way. Um, if you're looking at Sydney, down about 6% from the recent peak and Melbourne's um, more like 2 or 3% down. But if you go back to the previous trough, i.e. two to three years ago, they're up about 40%. So yes, house prices are softening, um, but there's still significant buffers, if you like, that we've seen over the last two to three years. And then probably more fundamentally, Um, I look at supply demand, particularly Melbourne, Sydney, in terms of the housing market, and what I see is an undersupplied market. I don't see interest rates going up any time soon, and I also sort of don't see uh, high levels of unemployment.
0: So overall, a softening, uh, but not a crash. I think the standard decline in house prices in Australia after a boom is somewhere between 10 and 15%. Do you think there's any reason to think this time is likely to be more than that no and i think if you look back and you'd say you know as i was just saying you know
2: if you're five or six percent down if you take another five percent down from where we are now um you know you end up with falls in house prices uh across australia of you know two or three percent and maybe flat the year after which after a Pretty strong period, I think, is healthy. To be brutally honest,
0: I suppose the difference between this time and previous periods was household debt is much mm. higher. Yeah. Um, and, so, and do you think that raises risks in the economy that didn't weren't previously there? I think what it does
2: is it means the consumer is more cautious. So, if you're looking at GDP, we know LNG exports are going to go up. We know that infrastructure spending is uh, you know jumping up a lot. Um, but we also know that retail um, doesn't look like it's doing that well. Um, so the consumer will buy things they think they have to have, like their iPhones and whatever, or the doctors and that sort of stuff, but they won't go to the discretionary retail shops. And that, I think, is an important problem because until you get wages growth, um, consumers going to stay cautious. And so once you get through some of these lumps and bumps with infrastructure and LNG exports, you end up with growth momentum to two and a half. And that makes life a little bit more tricky.
0: So uh, speaking of consumers, we saw retail trade on uh, th- uh, Thursday, uh, Wednesday, I think, but um, yep. uh, pretty anemic uh, annual growth rate, two yep. and a half percent. And what, yours yep. seem to, what you seem to be saying is that we're not, we're not going to see that increase much, if at all that That's basically where we're at we've We've got total
2: consumption, which includes retail sales um, a, a, as well as the services sector of something like two and a half percent going forward and you know once you get the special falling out you don't you don't really have much left and so um I think you know you're in a situation where the economy will be okay, but most people will think it' gee, this is tougher than what um the GDP numbers are saying and I think they're going to be right.
0: And the trade data basically confirmed that we're back to being a quarry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, an LNG exporter, uh, obviously, but, yeah, it's 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 going to add to GDP, we think, you know, 0.2, which is pretty similar to what it did in the first quarter. Um, so, you know, the domestic economy might travel at. You know, 0.5 or or thereabouts, and and you add a bit more, so you get a 0.6, 0.7 maybe, uh, for total GDP in the second quarter.
0: Obviously, the uh, rates on hold decision on uh, Tuesday wasn't yeah. a surprise at all. But was no. there anything at all in the statement that surprised you? They changed the wording a bit, but I, I think broadly,
2: short answer is no. The the everybody focuses on the last paragraph, which is where they talk about what they think needs to happen and the wording did not change. Um, so I think they, they're feeling relaxed about the idea that house prices are coming off a bit. Um, they're, they're sort of saying that APRA has helped in that Context and generally, they're fairly confident about their forecasts, which are for growth of around three percent. And I think that's roughly right. But as I was saying before, there's some specials here that are basically not going to last long. And you and me, unless we own LNG platforms, etc., own infrastructure, aren't really going to feel it.
0: Do you think that the tax cuts that have just come in will make any difference to the economy?
2: short answer is not a lot, because if you're looking at the personal tax cuts, um, they don't uh, actually apply until the end of this financial year. So you can't get your tax refund back before the end of the financial year. Um, Sure, they'll spend it, but I think they're reasonably small. And on the business side, uh, at this stage anyway, um, we're not getting the main players, if you like, involved uh, for a while and um you know business i think is essentially paying down debt rather than uh, investing i I think government uh, cuts to corporate tax will cause more investment and ultimately then cause tightness in the labor market but i think that's a fair way down the track
0: and here's shane oliver chief economist at amp capital to talk about house prices and the markets. Shane, house prices out this week. Now, you said in your note on the subject that you're likely, we're likely to see a uh, top to bottom fall of around 15%, um, which I suppose is kind of normal for, for this um, national average of 5%. And you reckon that a crash landing is unlikely, um, although it's a risk because of the Royal Commission. Tell us what you mean.
3: Well, I... I guess for some time I've been thinking. Well, we do a bit of a pullback in house prices. We're now starting to see that, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. And as you say, I'm looking for a 15% top to bottom fall in those cities. Other cities probably not are in reasonable shape, um, and they haven't had the booms. So you'll probably see modest modest growth in those other cities. So that's why you get that uh, 5% top to bottom for the national average. Um, and I and I think that weakness will be spread out over a couple of over a couple of years. Now, for, me, for a while, I've been thinking. Well. We're unlikely to have a crash landing, and of course a lot of people do fear that given the extent of the gains. But I thought we we're unlikely to have a crash landing unless we get much higher interest rates, much higher unemployment, or this supply boom goes on for several years. And I, I still don't see those things as unlike as likely. But obviously we've got the Royal Commission going on and I think the Royal Commission um is doing a lot of good work. One risk though is that it has the effect of making banks overly cautious. They go, they go from being too easy and friendly and making their loans, if you want to call it friendly, but uh, too, too uh, lax with their lending standards to being overly tight with their lending standards. And consequently, that tightening leads to a situation where there's a big constraint on buyers coming into the markets, um, and that sees the, 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 the falls in prices turn into a much sharper decline. So that's the risk I'm keeping an eye on at the moment. At the moment, I'm sticking with the base case, uh, 15% top to bottom in Sydney and Melbourne, but that risk is certainly there.
0: I think we've seen a a pretty big decline in uh, uh, no interest loans, sorry, interest-only loans and uh, high loan-to-value ratio loans, but I think overall there hasn't been a credit squeeze, has there yet? No, I think it would be wrong to say there's
3: a credit squeeze at the moment. Um, We are seeing a slowdown In lending growth, uh, uh, housing-related credits has been growing around 6%, but we've seen a stalling in investor loans. And of course, as you say, we've seen a sharp decline in interest-only lending as well. Now, some of the breaks might come off interest-only lending um, because the financial regulator, APRA, has sort of shifted focus away from that. But there's now uh, a more significant focus on um, making sure that borrowers do have the income they say they have that their expenses estimates are accurate, and more importantly that um, that banks limit their lending to households with high debt to income ratios, and the common thought there is that a high total debt to income ratio is around six times annual uh, average household income um, so that, that sort of restriction, if anything, is going to impact cities like Sydney and Melbourne where the price-to-income ratios are typically around 10 times. Um, so it's it's going to be very hard, I think, for borrowers to sort of get to, the, to the, the size of the financing they used to get in the past and also for investors to get multiple um, loans to fund multiple, multiple properties like they did in the past. Um, and so all those things will start to impact. Right here, right now, have we got a credit crunch? no. Um, but we to see the full impact of the credit tightening, which is currently underway, flowing through. My, my feeling is it won't turn into a credit crunch. Um, uh, I, I don't think the banks will go that far, um, but obviously the, I do think we're going to see a further slowing in credit growth to come.
0: You put out a second note this week, just looking at the investment outlook. What do you think the outlook is for um, for markets?
3: I, th- I think it's okay um, I must admit, I was surprised by the last four months. So when you look back at the numbers, um, particularly after the experience of the last six months, you, you think, well, that's been kind of volatile. Uh, the worries about the Fed, inflation in the US, the worries about um, Trump and tariffs and trade and all those sorts of things have caused a lot of volatility. But we did see pretty good gains in the latter half of last year, last calendar year. So that sort of set us up for a good financial year to start with. And of course, our share market really got a spurt on in the last month. Um, so, share market returns. Obviously, share market returned thirteen percent. Global shares was around eleven percent. But if you allow for the fall in the Aussie dollar, that pushed that up to fifteen percent out of global shares. So, pretty good gains out of share markets there. Even though bond returns were, were a lot more constrained. But overall, pretty good financial year that we've just seen. But I do think it's going to slow down in the next twelve months. We do have these issues about. Um, are uh, trade still impacting, obviously concerns about inflation and interest rates in the US, all those sorts of issues are still swirling around. And of course, share markets are no longer as cheap as they used to be. Um, that's also a bit of a constraint. So I think we'll probably get okay returns, um, but I think it's going to be a lot more constrained. One should certainly be thinking uh, single digits you know, for Aussie shares, more like 7 8% sort of number, rather than the 13% we saw in the last financial year.
0: I was interested. You you listed the storm clouds as you saw them and um, uh, you put trade war as third and um, the US economy at risk of overheating as first. Is that uh, that the order that you see the the problems? I mean, do you reckon that uh, the US economy overheating is the biggest risk?
3: I think the US economy probably is the biggest risk. Um, and maybe that's the economist in me putting the economics ahead of the politics. Um, the I think at the end of the day, if the US economy remains strong, um, even if the trade war goes on for a little bit longer, then that's probably something the markets might be able to bear. But if the US economy overheats uh, and then sees a, uh, a sharp breaking by the Fed, you know, the Fed gets a lot more aggressive, then that's that would be a bigger problem for financial markets than than the ongoing trade war, but but you can debate these things back and forth. Obviously, uh, the trade war impact is significant as well. It's just that I, I tend to think that the main driver, the main thing to keep an eye on is the state of the US economy. And historically, if you look back through time, whenever we've had significant bear markets, and I mean where the market comes down 20% and keeps going, um, it's Nine times out of ten, that occurs when the U.S. economy's gone into recession. Think the GFC, think the tech wreck, and so on. Um, whereas most other setbacks we've seen, markets do all sorts of things, um, tend not to be quite as bad if the U.S. economy um, avoids a recession. So, to me, that's the main issue: the extent to which the U.S. economy overheats, how much the Fed tightens, how much inflation goes up in the U.S. <music>
2: Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting.
0: I'm joined now by a long-term political journalist and now freelance, Lyndall Curtis, to talk about the week in politics and what a week it's been. Well, Lyndall, I think it's been a fascinating week because a couple of really important issues have been dealt with through personal conflict obviously, uh, Sarah Hanson young versus David Lanhelm and energy policy, you know, has been kind of expressed through Tony Abbott versus Malcolm Turnbull. But can we just talk about for a moment, Sarah Hanson young and David Lanhelm, how do you reflect on what's been going on there and how how we end up?
4: Oh, look, there are times in politics, Alan, where you really feel the need to bring out your mother voice and just tell everyone to calm down and go to their rooms for a bit. I think um, Sarah Hansen-Young has a point that whatever she said was not a personal attack on David Lionhelm in the Senate, but he responded with a personal attack. Now, as ever these days, there's a very heavy overlay of politics to everything that happens. Um, it's it's kind of politics before policy, and he he is enjoying his time in the sunshine, his time in the spotlight. Um, he needs name recognition, being a minor party senator, to to get re-elected whenever the election happens, and he's sticking to his guns. But it doesn't help the body politic. To have people throwing personal insults, and it certainly doesn't help to have uh, insults that are very heavily gender-based, like these ones are, um, and it it damages the whole body politic. I think people do expect a higher level of behaviour from their elected representatives who, of course, are being paid by the taxpayer.
0: Of course, those sort of personal attacks have been going on for years, but have you seen anything like that in your years uh, reporting politics?
4: Oh, look, occasionally attacks do get very, very personal, but that is the exception rather than the norm. People tend to know, politicians tend to know where to draw the line um, and they also tend to confine those sort of attacks generally to the floor of the parliament where they get usually stomped on pretty quickly, either by the Speaker in the House of Representatives or the President in the Senate. But it is it is the exception; it's not the norm. Um, they they're not edifying when they happen, and politicians should know by now not to do it.
0: Just moving on to Tony Abbott and energy policy. Obviously, there's two levels to what's been what he's been up to. Um, one is his kind of very interesting attacks on Turnbull, but also his attempt to overturn the National Energy Guarantee. I mean. Um, uh, the, the stuff he's been saying at Turnbull, you know, he, he says, I don't want to knock off the sitting Prime Minister. Turnbull does that. I don't, which I thought was <laughs> was amazing. How do you think both Abbott and Turnbull come out of that?
4: Well, it's hard to get a, very, uh, a more pointed remark, isn't it? Um, look, I think part of the problem for Tony Abbott is He's been waging this campaign against any form of what he says is a price on carbon, against any any reform to the energy market, which seems to promote or favour, although the, the proponents of the National Energy Guarantee so it doesn't favour renewable uh, renewable energy. But his attacks are being seen by his colleagues as an attempt to, at some stage, regain the leadership. He made this as part of his kind of, uh, I can't remember, I don't think it was a 10-point plan, but a multi-point plan for what he wanted that included things like reform of the Senate um, quite some time ago now. Um, and, and But I think now he has to uh, paint himself as not being after the leadership um, in order to get some more support from his colleagues because, interestingly, he doesn't have... Um, he doesn't have a kind of a wave of support from his colleagues, certainly not publicly. And behind the scenes, that isn't there. I don't think there's a, the will for another fight over energy policy to repeat what we've been doing, really, for more than a more than a decade with very little success. Um, he does. He he's right. He hasn't overturned a sitting prime minister, but he has overturned a sitting leader on a question of policy, and it was very similar on the question of Malcolm Turnbull's. Talking to Kevin Rudd's government over the CPRS. Um, I think Malcolm Turnbull probably comes out of this fight better than Tony Abbott because uh, whenever the government's doing well, um, it has a tendency to shoot itself in the foot, um, and people who cause problems when the government's doing well for themselves aren't looked on very kindly. Uh, at the core of this, though, is the politics over the National Energy Guarantee. The Nationals are making some noises about wanting funds for coal-fired energy. So it shows there's there's a messy political internal fight for the government to have. Um, and also, it has to keep a weather eye on the numbers on the floor of the Parliament. If it, if, it, if it can't get Labor to support it, then it really has to keep all of its own troops in line.
0: Do you have any sense... Have any kind of betting on whether whether the energy guarantee will get up or not?
4: Well, it, there are quite a few hurdles for it to jump. One of those is the states. That's that's really the first hurdle for it to jump. And then is whether Labor wants to wants to um, support it in in the form the government proposes or in some sort of negotiated form. You would think, although, if Labor supports it, it's handing something of a wing to a government. For Labor, the benefits of supporting whatever form it ends up in is that it does it puts uh, a kind of a, a flaw under the debate on energy and means it can build on that if it wants to in the future. You would think after many, many years of fighting over this, you some resolution is good that allows you to move forward with what you want, but that's a decision for the future. At the moment, um, Alan, I really stopped predicting things in two thousand and nine when politics went a bit weird. So actually, trying to figure out what will happen with yet another energy debate, I think is is probably um, above everybody's pay grade.
0: And just finally, do you think <laughs> there's any chance of a change of leader in any uh, in either of the two par- main parties?
4: Uh, uh, look again, with my no prediction since 2009 hat on, you never say never because the thing that's been happening in politics for the last decade is often the thing you think is least likely to happen. It's it's difficult and both sides know the damage a leadership change causes. Now, we are within spitting distance of an election. A, a House of Representatives and half-Senate election can be called any time from now. It's due by the end of May next year, so... Well, within a year of an election, it does tend to focus the minds of the parties on on what their electoral fortunes are. Um, both sides have had people nibbling at leadership questions, Anthony Albanese uh, talking, making his pitch for Labor to be nicer to business on the Labor side, and, of course, Tony Abbott making his pitch to to go back on the Paris Accord, which he himself signed up to when he was Prime Minister. But like I said, both sides know the damage a leadership change causes. There's a very high bar in the Labor Party because of the rules that were implemented to to have a change. Um, and for the government, I think um, they've had enough kind of little rays of sunlight in the last few weeks to think that that they may they may be okay. But you know, these are decisions for politicians to make, and they are less predictable than toddlers.
0: Happy birthday, Sir Richard Starkey, a.k.a. Ringo Starr, who turns 78 tomorrow. He was the drummer for the Beatles, of course, but as Paul McCartney said, I think, he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, and he can't sing for nuts either. But that didn't stop him, and he made the others let him sing a few tracks, including this one. Oh, I get by a little
3: help from my friends. Mm, get high with a little help from my friends. Mm, gonna try with a little help from my friends.
0: What do I do when my love is awake? Does it worry you to be alone? That's all for me this week. Enjoy your weekend.